I actually enjoyed that. I actually started applying to the CIA when I was in ninth grade. It was that intense, I would say, but it was, it was more than anything. It was just because like, I knew that was like the school that I wanted to go to. And I guess I saw it very far from happening from me just because of the where I grew up. And it was just like, uh, I don't see myself ever being able to, or my parents to help me afford this. And, and it was just something that I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And my mom always told me, she was like, I don't know how we're going to do it, but you're going to go. <laughs> that that was that was the one thing and she always said that I was like I don't know how we're gonna do it but we're gonna send you there so like I'd never applied anywhere else I just that that's the one and period that's the one we're going to and that was a very dream come true I would say when I was like yeah I'm going that's awesome behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft welcome to flavors unknown a behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. How to marry influences from Puerto Rico and from the South. My guest today is Chef Shamil Velasquez from Delaney Oyster House in Charleston, South Carolina. This is episode 68 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. And if you are new to this podcast, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S. And every other week, I share genuine stories of U.S. renowned culinary leaders and how their cultural identity shaped their creative process. You can find all the information on the website at flavorsunknown.com. And please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. Chef Shamil Velasquez talks about his Puerto Rican heritage and how it influences his cooking. He shares about his time at the Culinary Institute of America and his take on farm-to-table concepts. So welcome, Chef. Uh, thank you very much for accepting to be a guest on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. You are absolutely welcome. You know, you, you grew up in Puerto Rico. And so I, I'm curious of what kind of food influence you were exposed to. It's very interesting because Puerto Rico has uh, a lot of influences. Three, to be very specific, is the Spanish, the African, and then the native people that live there. So you have the Spanish that bring over all their influences from Spain. You have the Africans that came throughout the slavery. And then you have the natives that were living there already with all the local tropical Caribbean produce, and these three cultures mixed into one to turn out to be what we are today. So very diverse when it comes to, to the food. Okay. When it comes to yourself, though, I mean, you obviously you, you cook with, or you first probably ate like the cooking from your grandmother and for your mother, and then, you know, uh, you probably were cooking with them. So what kind of food, you know, were they, were they cooking and exposed you to? I think it was a lot of, uh, I'll say this, a lot of rice for sure. Sure. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of rice and beans. I mean, I, I just think uh, that's that's one of the things, like if I think my food, I think rice, I think plantains right off the rib. Uh, I think that I don't think plantains were never not present on my table, depending whether they were the sweet or the green ones. The, there was always some sort of plantain and my brother and I was always fighting as to who gets more or who gets pot. It was more about sustenance, I would say. It was, it was food to, to sustain us. It wasn't always the, the fanciest of food. Some days we would, you know, splurge and 
dad would come home with some big steaks and that would be awesome. But most of the time it was, it was just good, hearty, some full food that will get you full as much as possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is there special dishes that you, that you remember that you were fond of? I think one of my favorite dishes of all time, which uh, is probably one of the, the, the cheapest, I would say, <laughs> it would be uh, rice and Vienna sausages. So uh, Vienna sausages come out of a can. They're not very appealing. A lot of people don't like them. On the other hand, I grew up on them because they were just one of those sustenance things that you, when you grow up with those in that type of uh, situation, well, you, you grow up eating them. And everybody in Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico loves Vienna sausages, you know? So one dish specifically is rice and Vienna sausages with stewed beans and uh, roasted plantains or fried plantains, if you will. Wow. Like sit down with a spoon and go to town, man. So, <laughs> so uh, then do you think that the Vienna sausages are to Puerto Rico what um, spam is in uh, Hawaiian? Absolutely. People? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we love spam too. Don't get me wrong. It's uh, but. <laughs> Vienna sausages to to a lot of Puerto Ricans like oh yeah very very to the heart I would say to the heart okay yeah. do you still uh, eat them absolutely I eat them raw out of the can and then people like I said think it's not good and it's bad but it's I guess it's one of those guilty pleasures that you just you know you you just have to have them every so often and I like a specific brands too you know I don't uh, can't have any brand it's just not it's just, any brand of not Vienna. any brand of Vienna sausage <laughs> okay, cool so how then did you take that experience from your roots in Puerto Rico and apply that in your way of cooking? Because I'm guessing, you know, in your restaurants and different experience you had in California or in the South and now in, um, in Charleston, you're not cooking Vienna sausages on the menu every day. Absolutely not. You're definitely not. I think I took those influences from just me being there with, with my grandmother cooking or my mother cooking or other family members. I come from a family that everybody kind of cooks where everybody knows how to cook, I would say. It's just one of those things that you get taught from a young age to learn how to learn how to cook white rice. It's like the first thing they teach you how to cook, I guess. But I think those influences were more of, of me being with my family and me learning different dishes. Obviously, I said probably the lowest of the totem pole on dishes because obviously there was a lot more <laughs> ethnic dishes that I grew up around with, uh, seafood or pork-specific dishes. But those influences is what I think have shaped me a lot as a chef today, I would say. you have a specific example? to share with us? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a, a, a dish in the restaurant. It was uh, salt-caught empanadas. The salt-caught, for example, is a dish that my grandmother would make very vividly, I remember, during uh, Holy Week. And she would make uh, stewed salt-caught with white rice, potatoes, olives. And, and this dish is um, bacalao, guisao, is the, the, the term of it. And I decided to take that dish and flip it around and, and stuff it and put it into empanadas. Just in, rather than serving it with fried rice and avocado, I just decided to put it inside empanadas. And I think that, that for, that's an example that I would say that taking one of her dishes and flipping it a little bit more modern, still keeping it true to what it was. And it's probably as well the whole process with the bacalao of like desalting it. and Correct. You, know, you salt it, that. you press it, you hang it, you let it air dry. And then from there, you desalinate it. And then from there, you make the stew. And this is what something that your grandma was doing as well. Yeah, I mean, so, sometimes that most of the time she she would purchase the the salt cod. It's uh, I don't think you want to have that hanging in your backyard all the time. It's uh, <laughs> a little intense, but yeah, I mean, it's something that you can go to the local market and, and find a pound of of bacalao for a price, and then you go through the process of desalinating it uh, overnight and go from there. 
one day you decided to become a chef. So what what compelled you to um you know to to become a chef? I, I guess just being around so much food all the time. I guess it's just uh I think Puerto Rico has a very food centered culture, uh, and I think just having that culture where food is always 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 present. I mean it's, it's just there every. Every birthday party, quinceañera, it doesn't matter how, uh, what do you call it, uh, baptism, everything, food. It's always about the food, you know. Obviously, there's the reason why we're all there, but everybody always has to say something. Oh, what are you bringing? What am I bringing? And I think just the reason of being behind food and, and seeing how food specifically turns different emotions in people, I think that I really enjoyed that, seeing how happy it makes people when they eat it. It's not only for sustenance and, and health benefits as well, but it's also more of, of like, just the joy of being able to share a meal with somebody. I think that was very special to me. And, and, and being able to see that definitely made me want to like, oh, wow, I think I really like creating something and giving people different emotions. And I, and I enjoy being able to do that. And when we spoke before, you said something interesting to me. You said that you always had in mind that if, you know, as long as you can remember that you, you wanted to become a chef, correct? When you were a kid. Correct. That for career day and all those things, I always dressed up as a chef, I guess. And I don't, I, I just, I've never really given much thought of doing any other career. It's just something that I've, as long as I can remember, it's just that the, what I've always tried to go for. Started taking wedding cake classes, uh, I think at age 13, somewhere in that range. And then some people thought it was a little weird, but you know, it's, it's what I wanted. It's, 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 it's what I wanted. I mean, I was, I wanted a KitchenAid at that age. You know what I mean? It, it was what I was always so focused on, uh, on trying to teach myself as marriage as much as I could at that age. So to one day be able to be a chef, I guess. And then one day you went to the CIA in uh, New York State. Correct. So Correct. How was that experience? That was amazing. I actually, um, I actually enjoyed that. I actually started applying to the CIA when I was in ninth grade, and I was <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was that intense. I would say, but it was it was. More than anything, it was just because like, I knew that was like the school that I wanted to go to. And I guess I saw it very far from happening from me just because of the, the where, where I grew up. And it was just like, uh, I don't see myself ever being able to or my parents to help me afford this. And, and it was just something that I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And my mom always told me, she was like, I don't know how we're going to do it, but you're going to go. <laughs> that that was that was the one okay. thing. And yeah. she always said that. I was like, I don't know how we're going to do it, but. We're going to send you there. So like, I'd never applied anywhere else. I just thought that's the one and period. That's the one we're going to. And that was a very dream come true. I would say when I was like, yeah, I'm going. That's awesome. So when I went in there, it was it was very, very exciting for me because everything was so new. The culture. Every, I mean, I have never lived outside of Puerto Rico. So all of a sudden I see beets, rutabagas, turnips, just vegetables. No. that don't, Yeah. <laughs> No, in the winter. Yeah, yeah. There's no winter in Puerto Rico. So all of a sudden you see all these different lettuces and you're like, what is going on here? Like, So everything to me was just like, even with the fish, just like all the other proteins. And I'm just like mind blown where all the other students sometimes are just looking and they're like, yep, that's a green bean. And to me, that's like, have you tried this? Like, wow, <laughs> that's killer. And it, and it was it was a very culture shock for me. And I was lucky enough that I had two roommates that were also Spanish. One was Dominican and the other one was from Puerto Rico right off the boat as well. So we all went through it. So for us, it was like, game on, let's get it. And and, and we learned a lot from each other and from the culture itself in, in New York because it was, it was just like, wow, this is a whole different world for us, let's say. 
with all the chefs that I got on the show, I could say that I really have like two groups of chefs and two different train of thoughts. Is one group is really about the fact that you need to have a culinary education and and you have it through culinary school, like you know the CIA. And then there was a second group of uh, of chef that in fact was absolutely not really against, but the idea is that it's not the most important. You know, don't spend the money, uh, you know, on this travel, you know, in different parts of, of the world where you can find, you know, stages at, at chefs that you really admire and then acquire this, um, you know, hands-on culinary training. So I, I'm curious about what's your, your so this, thought about that. This is a topic very, very big in our industry. And I know a lot of famous chefs have different views on it. I, I understand both sides of the coin, I would say. Obviously, I lean towards more the education side because I was there. In, I guess in my instance, I knew I, I had to get an education. It was a must in my household. It was like, you have to get an education, period. So if you're going to do it, do it in what you want. And that was my choice. And me having my uncle, who's a chef as well, he, he didn't have the education. He didn't go through the education and ended up working on a buoy in Spain. And he didn't go. So he, he's the complete opposite of my side. He understands, but he's the one that didn't go to school. And he pushed me to go to school. He said it would be a very good base and foundation for me to, to start with, I would say. So, so some of the things that I say that are important about culinary school for me personally was theory. Understanding theory for me was the important history. And definitely uh, the discipline that I say that I got on there, not to say that you don't get discipline and that you can't learn theory and history through all these restaurants that you can visit and stage. But I think it's, if you're not asking the right questions, sometimes you're not really, sometimes chefs don't always take the time to do that for you or to, or, or, or go about it. I think one of the things is to me, is just, if you're going to do either or just put your two feet and, and your heart into it and, and go about it. So do I agree with going to culinary school? Yes, I think it's I think it's a great idea. I think it definitely is a good base. It'll it's good foundation. So today, if uh, you know you are hiring people, you know that are like young cooks and so on. So you you are going to look at on their resume the fact that they've been to a culinary school. Negative. I I do not. I I'll, I'll be honest. I do not. It's, it's very it's very rare actually to find people in in resumes that have it, and, and I have nothing against it. I. I don't see anything wrong with them. They, everybody has different experiences. Everybody has different talent bases and different uh, work ethics. And it is for you as a chef to accept that and, and teach them and learn what they have to teach you and, and you to teach them. You just have to be open-minded about that, I would say. I think in resume, I look more how long people work at certain places than where you worked and what you've done and what it is. Because sometimes people work these great places but also have like very bad habits where they're not willing to learn and for me sometimes it's not even about the experience you have it's more about what's your attitude as a personal as a person and then are you willing to learn are you willing to teach are you willing to open up and accept because everybody does things differently you just have to accommodate and adjust and be flexible to learn other people's ways i think loyalty is definitely the one i look for more in 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 resumes i mean are you a person that's jumping left and right or are you a person that's you know Put your head down. I do you feel that our generation are are jumping more left and right now? Yes. I mean, you're not that old anyhow, but <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but I, I will say yes. It, it is it is something very concerning to me personally. Now that I'm on this side of the board and I keep seeing and I keep hiring people and and and, and this is something in our industry that I see a lot. People will a lot of part of the younger generation will start in a restaurant and and 
expect you to teach them everything you know in two, three months so that they can go to the next one and the next one. It's like, man, this is a give and take and this is all respect. And then you, you have to make sure that you, how bad do you want it? You know, I think the longer you stay with a chef, the, the more and more you learn and, and you guys teach each other a lot. You know, you, you start learning a lot more because you start opening up a lot more and you, there's trust that gets developed, but you can't expect that within two, three months. <laughs> I, I teach you everything that I've been teaching myself for years and years and learning from others. I, I just don't think that's right. So when you were at the, the CIA, in your degree, you had a concentration on uh, in farm to table. And then when I, I saw that, I'm like, aha, I'm going to <laughs> chat a bit with you about this. Because again, there's a lot of controversy about this topic, not not in the, let's say, really in the chef world, but in the media, in fact, because this w term, say, farm to table, of, has been used like really in different ways. It's been used a lot, you know, for marketing. It's almost it's lost its original meaning that was really the food that was main locally sourced, you know, ingredients and that was, you know, natural or organic. So what's your opinion on, on the farm to table uh, movement? So when I, in CIA, when you are in your bachelor's degree, you get a choice of going to China, France, Italy, or California. The California program started with our class and it was under chef Larry Forgione, which is very a chef that I was very eager to learn from and understand from and work with after knowing who he was. And then I was just really excited when I heard about that. So I was like, oh, I, I, I have to forget all the other places. I'll travel, I'll get there. But right now I want to go immerse myself in it. So we pretty much worked on a farm during the day. And then whatever we got from the farm is what we would make in the menu and present at the end of the week for an open restaurant that we would open for two days, uh, Friday and Saturday, I believe. Now, The term, I do agree, it has definitely become more of a marketing and a slang for people to say farm to table. When we went to school, uh, it wasn't taught to us like that. It was taught to us like, hey, this is the way of life, this is the way you do it. And for a lot of us that grew up in an island, for example, and I grew up with two breadfruit trees in my backyard, so I knew what it was to have something or a banana tree in my backyard for green bananas. So my grandmother had her mango tree. Other family members had uh, avocado trees. You know, for us, it was very important to like, hey, this is what I have. What do you have? Let's share. So to me, it was it was very it was very common for me to go down the street and, and see the the farmer grows the squash, the plantains, the juca, the taro root, and all that stuff. And me go to him every day and be like, hey, what do you have? So to me, that was really normal. But then today, this whole farm to table, farm to fork movement has just been blown up. You know, by by all these major companies and. It works, but I think as a chef, it is our due diligence to make sure that we are finding the or, or working with local farmers, local fishmongers, oyster farmers, and, and, and do our part in society rather than leaving the carbon footprint of getting stuff from the other side of the world when it's right here. So how do you apply that, you know, on the day to day with your relationship with, um, you know, farmers and purveyors? Those relationships, I think, are built very naturally by whether it's me that I see they're producing social media. I think that actually not, I think not. When both times, uh, when we were opening up Husk Greenville, the first thing I did when I came to South Carolina was go to the farmer's market. And I made it a thing to make sure that I said hi to everybody and anybody that I saw had something that I was very interested in and get to know them that way. And the same thing I did when I got to Charleston. Um, 
I went to the farmer's market here. I went to two farmer's market here and I presented myself to every person that I was like, whoa, like, look at these radishes or wow, look at these ahi peppers. Tell me about them. And I would just, that way, it just not, I think all the farmers are always so excited to tell you because everybody just, most of the time will just go up and be like, how much? Cool. Bye. Thank you. See you tomorrow. See you next week. Where if you stop for them for a second and talk to them about how they grew it, why they grew it, and they'll tell you about all the love that they're putting into it. So I think those those relationships come naturally from you talking to them. Others, like I said, come to social media that you see things you're like, whoa, I didn't even know this person existed or this farm existed, or just by other chefs telling you, or you go into a restaurant being like, whoa, that that was that was good, and you look them up, and you're like, oh wow, cool, and then you just connect with them that way. I would say. Can you talk to us about the restaurant that you're at at the moment, Delaney, you know, Oster House in, in Charleston that you are the chef of? So yes, what's, sir. what's the, the concept of the food? I'm sure there's a, you know, I, I mean, I've seen the menu, obviously, but there are a lot of oysters, but what else? What are you guys doing? It is definitely a seafood focused restaurant where I would say my team and I are sourcing local seafood that grows in not only in our waters, but in the Southern area. And as well as pairing them with the low country produce that grows around us. Uh, I think that's the best way I, I can describe it while adding a little bit of Caribbean soul in there, I would say, because it's something I, I can't hide, <laughs> something the way I think. And I think all those ideas, apart from oysters that we also get from the South, I guess we can also get oysters from all, all the East Coast up and down. So focusing on flavor and technique and trying to be as sustainable as possible with it. So can you give us one or two examples of things that you are proud to, you know, have to put on the put on the menu? Oh yeah. I'll give you one very, very example of, of one dish that I am, um, you know, that I was on denial. Let's put it that way. I was in denial of putting it because I had it, it actually it was a dish that got me the job I got. <laughs> and it was uh my grandmother's flan. Right? It was uh I, I was in denial of putting it on the menu because I was like, why am I gonna put flan on the menu? Like why <laughs> and and the reason and i just kept asking i was like why am i gonna do this like every restaurant in puerto rico has some sort of flan on the menus always some with little whipped cream the little red chair it doesn't matter like somebody always has one so to me it was like a big no way like that is not happening and funny thing is like every event that happened in my family or something grandma always had the flan she always had to do it and everybody at the end you're full eating all this food and boom here comes the flan, the best part of the night. And it's been sitting there taunting everybody all night, and now we can eat it. <laughs> and I guess since I saw it so much, I would never put it on the menu. And it was one of those things that I put on the menu, and I was just like, wow, like, <laughs> there's a reason why, you know, like, there's there's a reason why my, my boss was wanting me to put it on. And I was like, all right, let's do it. So I took my grandma's recipe and modernized it a bit. And it has had great feedback from everybody who tries it. And it's very special to me to see something that I was just like, nah, I'm not going to do it. And everybody's like, whoa, that's that's intensely good. And that just fills me with joy when I see that. I was like, oh, wow, cool. Something I just didn't think. So when you say you modernized it, what, what did you do to it? Can you, can um, you share? I think I just tweaked a lot with the flavors. I think obviously a flan is just uh, eggs, uh, condensed milk, evaporated milk, and usually some sort of flavoring where it's vanilla extract. And I think I, uh, in Puerto Rico, we make uh, flan de queso, which you add cream cheese. And rather than cooking in a bain in a water 
that yeah. I actually steam them and I played that around with that. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it, it, maybe it's just the oven I have that it, that leaves the texture so different on it from steaming them rather than uh, cooking them in that water bath. And then just the addition of different citruses that I added onto it. And then I put a nut brittle on top and the sea salt and the lime zest. I guess I just try to elevate the flavor as much as possible. I took the, I took the simple flan that grandma makes with caramel and, and looked at it. And I was like, how can I add more flavor into this and more, but keeping it true to hers. And I think that's, that's what happened. And then we ended up with it and it was like, whoa, that's, there you go. <laughs> that works. If there's any um, other dish where you, you have, uh, let's say, introduced some uh, flavors from uh, Puerto Rico? Yeah, uh, I think our number one seller, which is the crab rice, that's definitely one of those dishes that's been on the menu since day one. And that dish itself pretty much is taking something that, again, I know I mention her a lot, but something that my grandmother would make a lot, arroz con huelles. Back home, we have land crabs. Over here, we have blue crabs. Different in flavor, I would say. Different crab for sure, but the ideas are still the same. So I took uh, what in the South, you know, it's a holy trinity. And in Puerto Rico, you have the sofrito. Mix those together and uh, pretty much went around town, tried different crab rices from different restaurants that have been established for many, many years that have that, how do I say, uh, different crab rices within the Gichi Gula community that they have. And I try to come up with my own. And, and I think that dish came out really well. It's actually sells a lot in the restaurant. And I think that dish represents uh, me and it represents the South in, in a very special way. Puerto Rico is a big source of inspiration to you. But what, what are like um, other source of inspiration, sources of inspiration that you, you have? I think I get my inspiration from uh, just being present in, in, in everyday life, I would say, in I'll give you an example. For I'll give you a, the best example I gave you last week. Last weekend, I went to Bertha's Kitchen, which is a soul food restaurant here in the area. They won Jim Beard Award, and they just have good, stick to your gut, delicious Southern food. And I went there, and, and I remember having the cabbage, just braised cabbage with a lot of neck bones. And I sat down and I ate, it and I was like, "Holy hell!" Like. There's so much flavor in this cabbage. And then obviously I got excited. So then my wheels started spinning in my head. And I was like, I got to think of something. <laughs> I got to think of something like just I had to get it out. And as I was leaving, I was like, oh, boom, cabbage puree, some sort of uh, <laughs> ham neck bone jew or something like that with scalps. I, I don't know, like that's where my head was going. And then this whole week I've been writing down every flavor comparison that I could think impossible that will work with that that idea or those flavors and, and what's available right now. And we have the dish drawn up, so we're excited this week to go into the restaurant and get it going, I would say. But that's one way of finding inspiration, I would say. Just like I said, just being present and, and just getting excited over the little things where I, where I go. Uh, another inspiration, I would say... Um, is the people I surround myself with, my sous chefs, for example. They have their own lives and they have their own basis of where they work and whatnot. So it's always cool for them to be like, oh, I have this, I've done this. And I'm like, oh, I've done that. Oh, dude, what if we do this? And we go from there. And I think that's always very important as a chef for you to open up and learn from others rather than just being like, my food, my way or the highway. It's like, no way, man. It's always easier for 
for you to like understand other people and where they come from so that we can do something really cool together. I would say obviously last last but not least, I think my inspiration always has been my family because my my food is is like I come back to it. I mean we we gathered pretty much every other weekend together just to eat. Just to eat. It was it was very important that that the whole family would get together, have a couple of drinks and then have some good food. And that was that was it. Rainy days, asopao, which is uh pretty much like a stew that you would make and other days, it would just be a simple barbecue. The whole point was being together and sharing food. And I think that's that's a big inspiration for me as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you say barbecue, what kind of uh, of meat and, and sauces do you use? A good example is back home, we have a route that's called La Ruta del Lechon, which is called the route of pork, and it's called Guavate, Puerto Rico. And, and that's a style of barbecue, if you will, or pig roast that you will, that uh, you, you roast the pig over leña, which is a type of coal that we have back home. and, and That roast itself is just all about that crunchy pork skin and then the the, the meat inside. And, and then you eat that with like boiled bananas and rice and pigeon peas. And I'm not saying like yellow bananas, they're like green bananas and all the croutons that go with, just with that alone. So there are certain barbecues or fogong, as, as you would say it. And so do you use any like uh, hot sauce with this or no? Oh, yeah. Our, our hot sauce is, uh, is, is very different, actually. Uh, I've, I've done it a couple of times here in the States, and, and it's very fun because our hot sauce, I don't see our hot sauce as, as being spicy. It's more as flavor. So when the flavor itself, it's all done through fermentation of pineapple rinds, and you make pretty much like a vinegar that way. That's one of the traditional ways. And then to that, you add your, your ají caballero and your different peppers into that some people throw garlic other people throw a little bit of olive oil in there oregano i mean you can go wild doing this and then you let it ferment for about two weeks and then you go about it so it's not like the traditional vinegar based hot sauces that you see in the u.s by that i mean like you take the pepper and you lacto ferment it with salt and you have a mash and then from that you add vinegar which that hot sauce is delicious as well don't get me wrong that's the one i actually do at the restaurant But I think ours is like a lot more liquidy, so you can put it on top of rice or pork and just okay. adds a hint you more flavor. What, what kind of peppers do you use in Puerto Rico? Uh, I think my favorite pepper that grows in Puerto Rico is ajis, ají dulce. Ají dulce, and that, that pepper is uh, it's one of those peppers that you bite into and you're like, uh-oh. But then you're like, oh, there's no spice to it. It's all sweet. <laughs> just because it's like so pepper flavor forward, super sweet. I absolutely love it. And there's actually one farm here locally that grows them, spade and clover. And when I came out here down to Charleston, I saw these at the farmer's market very specifically. I remember I was like, are these scotch bonnets or are they, are they spicy? And the guy was like, no, 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 they're ají dulces. And I'm like, say what? And I, and I got so excited about it because like, and, and I remember this year, obviously, with all everything that's going on, I was like, hey. Do you have a pound? Hey, do you have two? I mean, every week I'd be like, so do we have more? Or hey, when they're when they're ready, put me in for five pounds. You could make a, you know, create a sauce and set it at the at the restaurant. Yeah, so I, I was I trying to get as much as possible just so that I would have it or make it into a vinegar or make it into a sauce so that I can have it for the rest of the year or whatever it is. But it was just, I was, I mean, I was telling them, I was like, hey man, I'm gonna buy as much as you got because I love them and, and they're great with our food because it works and. We, we got what we could, and, and now they're gone till next year. You uh, worked in, uh, 
in Napa Valley in uh, you know in California and then of course you are in Charleston now so how would you describe the difference on the food scene between those two parts of the country I think the best way to describe it I think let's start with Napa I say Napa is very minimal with cooking and by minimal I mean it's they usually focus on one ingredient and like they let that ingredient shine as much as possible and very clean very straightforward very I think clean is the best way I can say it. If, if, if you want asparagus, it's asparagus. And, and that's it. It's make sure it's the, the best asparagus you eat. And the technique is right behind it. And then you come to South Carolina, and it's, it's not that it's any different, but I would say they, they add a lot more soul and depth of flavor. And it's all about layers of flavors and layering to get to one end product. And it can still be that one asparagus, but there's just so much depth of flavor to that asparagus that it's going to be different. By the way, asparagus does not grow here, from what I understand. So that was probably a bad ingredient to use. But that I'm getting at is just clean versus like soul, love, and then just wholesome, I would say. It resonates with your roots in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And, and, and not that I didn't, not that I didn't get that in California, because obviously there is a lot of love that goes into it. I just think it's just two different, completely two different cultures. Uh, absolutely completely different. Cool. So every time I have um, a chef, you know, on the show, I'm asking them to share kind of a guideline for a recipe, a suggestion for a home cook to, you know, create a dish, but it will have to have your spin to it. So it will have the Shamil Velasquez, you know, a twist or style. And uh, I thought that's because you were talking about seafood and you're in Charleston that maybe we should um, focus on shrimps. So what would you make? What would you suggest me as I would say a home cook and a food enthusiast to, to do at home with shrimps. Easy one, man. Camarones al ajillo. Mm-hmm. You can't go with wrong. Garlic, yes. You can't go wrong with shrimp and garlic. There's just no. There's nothing wrong about that. You know, it's just all satisfying. Uh, I would say shrimp, shrimp and garlic. Uh, we we do this at the restaurant actually right now, and then, and we serve it as simple as possible. The only thing different is that we make is a uh, a very flavorful olive oil. We steep it in with a little bit of seaweed. And garlic and chilies, and then on pickup, it's all technique really. It's, uh, it's, it's sherry, white wine, butter, herbs, and lemon with the shrimp that we source locally here. Serve that with a side of bread, a nice cold glass of wine, and enjoy. <laughs> okay, so I have two questions for you. You mentioned seaweed, so what kind of seaweed do you use? Combo. Okay, and then you talk about chile, correct? Arbol, chile, yeah. chile de arbol. Arbol, yes. Okay. The spicy okay, little, so little guys. What's the different step? How how do I start my recipe? Okay, so if I clean the shrimp, remove the, the veins out the back. And once you have that in a pan, put down your, let's say you do not have this uh, infused oil. Let's just go with regular olive oil. Extra virgin is my, my choice. And you just want to get the oil hot enough where it's not smoking because then it'll turn bitter on you. But uh, once you have your oil going, you're going to add your sliver garlic. I would I like doing thin slices of it. I don't like dicing it up or anything like that because I think it burns faster. But uh, pretty much it's, it's a game that you're playing with the fire. Let's put it that way. You're, you're up and down with the knob and you just got to make sure your temperature is right. So you add your garlic, your garlic starts to toast. It's going to start dancing, dancing on the pan. Boom, you add your chilies, two chilies. You're immediately going to smell that and you're going to be like, oh, it's ready. You see the little brown edges going around. You're like, oh, time to go. You take, you add your shrimp, make sure your shrimp are seasoned with salt priorly, add your shrimp in there. And now the fun time happens because if you overcook the shrimp, they're not good. 
because they get rubbery. And if you undercook them, well, you know. So the, the trick that I do is I put a lid on it. Uh, lid creates steam. I bring the fire to really, really low when that happens. And I'm telling you, this dish cooks in probably less than a minute, 30 seconds from start to finish, probably less than that. Bring the fire low, cover it with a pan. That just allows the, the, the shrimp to steam very quickly within the flavors of the oil. Take the lid off. You see that the shrimp are almost there. To that, you're going to add a little butter, monte it. Oh, I forgot something in the whole process, the alcohol. <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> I do this every day at work, and then I'm here thinking, I was like, man, I'm missing something, the sherry and the white wine. Sorry. When you put in your shrimp, <laughs> that's what creates the steam. When you put in your shrimp, you add a, a touch of white wine and sherry, and be careful with the fire because obviously you have alcohol. So you bring down the fire, you put the lid on it. Once we go through that process, probably like 30 seconds or so, take the lid off. Add a dab of butter, emulsify that in, some herbs and some uh, good squeeze of lemon, and then season again with salt. Taste your sauce, and and there it is. To that, put a piece Very of cool. grilled bread on the side, and, and you yeah. got a party. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks. I'm, I'm definitely going to do it. So it sounds a lot simpler than what I just probably made it. <laughs> it, it, it it's a lot easier to do it. I'll do a video for no, you about that. <laughs> I follow you. No problem. Cool. So uh, we're almost done, but I would like to finish with a, a series of uh, rapid-fire questions for you. Oh, do it. So you and I, you know, I'm traveling down to Charleston, and then you and I are going to spend uh, a little bit of time together, and you are going to introduce me to your favorite spots, you know, in Charleston. So, of course, not your restaurants. So outside the restaurants, what are, like, the five spots that you are going to take me to? I'm talking about food spots, correct? Or bars, but, you know. I'm going to start off strong with El Molino. Uh, I feel like I take everybody there, which is just like a Mexican restaurant, <laughs> but they, they do it right. They don't cut corners. Okay. They don't, they don't cut corners. We're going to jump down to Folly Beach. We're going to go have a burger at, uh, Low Life. I think they have a solid burger. Uh, we're going to skip over to, uh, Lewis barbecue and have, uh, some brisket and some corn pudding. Man, that stuff is killer. Killer. <laughs> I just thought of that. That's so good. And I think my last restaurant for, I would say, for breakfast, I'm going to say uh, Miller's All Day. <laughs> it's actually a pretty good uh, breakfast restaurant that focuses on uh, using very good local ingredients and, and, and serves killer grits, in my opinion. And then, so what are like the three cookbooks that inspire you the most in your career? Very recently, it's called Mokyoto Mokyota from a Japanese cooking school. And they have a series of cookbooks and they're one on... Fish that they have in fish butchery has definitely influenced me a lot. Another one would be Charlie Trotter's cookbook series. I have uh, one uh, from when he was in Chicago, all his series, but I think his seafood one, his own vegetable one, I think it's, his vegetable one is very, very peculiar to me. Just his style of food and the way he saw food was very interesting. And then on the classic side, I would think uh, Jean-Louis Padan with uh, Cooking with Seasons. I actually found that book in one of my uh, thrift shop travels in North Carolina. And I found the book. I was like, no way I found this. I, I've been having it on, on my cart on eBay for a long time, but I've never bought it. And I was able to find it at a good price. And when I opened the book, the style of cooking that was happening back in the day was just crazy compared to the stuff that it is today. And I think we should see a little more of that nowadays. Thank you. So beside the Vienna sausages, what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Ooh. Guilty pleasure food. <laughs> you said Vienna sausages. I would have to say plantains for sure. 
think it's one, for for me it's one of those ingredients that I just I'll take them however you want <laughs> fried okay. deep fried roasted sweet doesn't matter I'll eat them anyway what's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen oh man not filling in the sea folds <laughs> that's right like the sea folds the paper towels When people leave them empty, I think that really bothers me a lot. <laughs> It's like, come on, man, you took the last one. Why would you do that? Like, what's up with that? That's not cool. I think that's definitely one of them. And, and two, not staying behind. Like, I think that bothers me a lot because it's just a safety thing more than anything. So the last one. So besides the classics, you know, when I say classics, it's like ketchup, mayo, and all of that. What condiments, spices, or sauces you like to have on hand at your house, at your home? In my home? You know, funny you say that because my, my fiance is like the condiment queen. Like she will put on our table. There's a lot of condiments when it comes time to eat. For me, I'm going to have to say Duke's, man. Duke's mayonnaise. It's something from the South. The mayonnaise here in the South is special. I don't know what they put in it, but it's Duke's is one of those things. And then you mix that with a little bit of ketchup and you got mayo ketchup and boom. Wow. That's all I got to say. Wow. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Nothing, nothing uh, connected to your roots from Puerto Rico? From Puerto Rico, I mean, I do. My, my parents do send me uh, hot sauce from Puerto Rico, and I, and I definitely keep that around. But no, I, I would say... The one with uh, the pineapple and then the, the sweet chili that you mentioned before? Yes, yes, yes. They actually, uh, there's a specific place in town that they get it from that I like it. And we always have that in here as well as coffee that they send us. So that's, those are the top. Very cool. Chef, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And it's really cool to uh, spend time with you and hear a bit more about uh, you know, what you do in, in Charleston. Thank you for having me, sir. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Flavors Unknown podcast with Chef Shamil Velasquez. If you did, please do me a favor and share it with a friend or a colleague. It is very easy. You can do it right now from your phone. Find the three little dots on Spotify or in the purple circle on Apple Podcasts. Click on them, scroll down to the share icon, pick text messages, for instance, and send a link to someone you know will enjoy this episode. Make sure to subscribe or follow the show as you do not want to miss any future episodes. Speaking of which, my next guest is Chef Levin Wallace from Nashville, Tennessee. We will talk about his new business concept, Fat Belly Pretzels, about fast casual business in general, the food scenes across regions like California, Northeast, Louisville, and Nashville. Please subscribe or follow Flavors Unknown podcast as you do not want to miss this episode. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com. 